Good to see you. Just came from downstairs where I just preached this for the second time. Now on to the third time. I'm going to be tired at lunchtime. Today is the second of three messages on the good life, which was taken from Jesus' most famous sermon, probably the most famous sermon in the world, Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 6 and 7 is where we're focusing. Last week, Scott, Scott did preach on the good life and how that's one where we seek the approval of God rather than men. So if we live for the praise of men, you remember what he said, our only reward that we're going to receive is what people happen to think of us. But if we live for the approval of God, we get two things. We get to be used by God to actually accomplish something on earth that has lasting value, yes, and there is reward in heaven from God when we get there to enjoy forever. Now that's the good life. That's the good life. So today we're going to turn to the second half of Matthew 6. If you need a Bible, there's guys that will bring that up for you. Just raise your hand real quick. Matthew 6, we're going to look at verses 19 through 33. Just slip your hand up, I'll get you one. While they're doing that, let me just tell you this. In 2004, Disney made a movie called National Treasure. Anybody see it? Okay. It was a ridiculous story about a lost treasure of artifacts, gold, and jewels that began in Egypt and somehow got moved to America with no one finding out, all while being protected by the Knights Templar, whoever they are. And the only map to the treasure, of course, was on the back of the Declaration of Independence. Right. That's where you would put the the map which had to be stolen in order to find the treasure. Sure, let's steal the Declaration of Independence. There were good guys and bad guys. Who knew? And a race to find the treasure and a developing love story. No way. In the end, the good guys, if I'm ruining it for you, I'm sorry. The good guys find the treasure, turn it over to the world for all the people to enjoy. How very noble of you. Get a finder's fee. Very nice. Makes them rich, and everybody lives happily ever after, and the guy gets the girl. Yay! The movie received mixed reviews at the box office, or by the critics, rather, because, well, what I just said. There was no plan for a sequel. None. But at the box office, it was a smashing success. So they made a sequel. Why? Because everyone loves a good treasure hunt. Everybody loves a good treasure hunt. I did as a boy. People dream of finding treasure and becoming rich. A movie like this doesn't have to be historically accurate or even completely believable. It just needs to appeal to our imagination. Oh, yeah. We imagine what a great life it would be if we owned a fortune. Sometimes we look with envy at those who have great wealth and think they're living the good life. If only that were me. Jesus addressed this very issue in the second half of Matthew 6 because guess what? People haven't changed in 2,000 years. They were struggling with the same way of thinking. He tells his disciples this, the good life isn't made by owning a fortune, but by trusting God to provide for your needs. That's the big idea for today, so let me say it again. If you take one thing away, it's this. The good life isn't made by owning a fortune. It is made by trusting God to provide for your needs. Let's jump in at verse 19. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth moth, nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. There your heart will be also. Everyone seeks treasure. That's just assumed by Jesus. Did you catch that? 
He just assumes everyone seeks treasure. In fact, he says, where your heart, where your treasure is, that's where your heart is. So seeking treasure is not the problem. Not in and of itself. It's not. Jesus said, where your treasure is. So the issue is not if we treasure, but what we treasure. He only gives us two alternatives. Earthly treasure and heavenly treasure. That's it. What's earthly treasure? You know exactly what earthly treasure is. Money, possessions, property, things, materialism, consumerism, stuff. Any of you remember the old veggie tale, Stuff Mart? I love watching that one. Stuff Mart! Yeah. We get that. We know earthly treasure. But Jesus says the issue is these things, they won't last. He says three things about them. Number one, they're hard to hang on to. Remember he says the moth and rust destroy? What's that about? Well, in the first century, one of the signs of wealth were expensive garments. They didn't go in and out of style like we have today. They were expensive garments, handmade, and they'd be passed down as heirlooms to the next generation. But they were subject to destruction by moths. And it was gone that quickly. And he says, rust destroy. What's that about? Well, they didn't have paper money like we do. So they used precious metals. And the metals themselves would rust or perish or devalue. And then he says, you could lose it while you have it anyway. He says, thieves break in and steal. Where did they keep their valuables? They didn't have banks. They kept them hidden underground in in the dirt floor of their home. They had them buried somewhere, hidden somewhere else. That's where they kept their valuables. So thieves would break in and steal. They knew everyone had them. Just had to find it. Just had to find it. Well, we don't have that issue today as much. But, you know, we can lose things really quickly too. I'm just going to name a few things to make you sweat and be nervous this morning. The stock market could crash. Oh, yeah. Remember 2007, 2008? No, don't think about that. Your property values could decrease. You could have depreciation of assets. Your medical bills could spiral out of control. You could lose your job. I know a lot of you have. Major car repair, home foreclosure, a costly lawsuit. All of these things are the ways we today in our 21st century can face catastrophic loss like that. And lastly, Jesus says, you don't take it with you when you die anyway. How many of you know the saying that says this? He who dies with the most toys wins. You ever heard that? Yay, he who dies with the most toys wins. You know what the answer to that is? He who dies with the most toys still dies. Yeah. Yeah. You take none of it with you when you die. None of it. No treasure of this life is carried into the next. Now, in contrast to that, Jesus says lay up treasure in heaven where it won't be lost or stolen or depreciate in value. So what's heavenly treasure? Well, that may seem a little harder to define, but it's not. It's not complicated at all. Heavenly treasure is anything that pleases God. Anything that pleases God. I'll just give you two. Character that is like his son, Christ-likeness. If you let God work in your life so that you end up looking like Jesus by your character, God is very pleased with that. That's forgiveness, mercy, compassion, grace, truth, humility. All those things that Jesus embodied, if we embody, that pleases God. And how about a life of good works? Things done in his name. Like what? Giving, helping, serving, teaching, encouraging, praying, witnessing. All those things done in the name of God. Those are ways we lay up treasure in heaven. Things that please God. And did you catch Jesus actually commands us to do it? He says, lay up treasure in heaven. Some Christians I have heard say, it's not holy to look for a reward when you do something good. You have to do everything expecting nothing in return. That's not what Jesus said. That is not what Jesus said. Matthew 6, 6. When you pray, go into your room, 
shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. Why would he use that? Why would he say that? It's a motivation. Is it not? If you do this, God will reward you. You say that as a motivation to someone. He did it two other times in chapter 6, verse 4 and 6, 18, if you want to look those up. So the question is not whether it's right to look for a reward. Jesus tells us to seek the right kind of reward. The question is, who do you want to reward you? That's the issue. If it's your heavenly Father, that is pleasing to God because your focus is on Him and what He values. Do you remember the parable of the talents that Jesus told in Matthew 25? In that parable, He encouraged His disciples to be faithful with what God had given them, whatever He had given them on earth, so that at the end of their life they would hear these words from God. Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. Listen, I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. Jesus told that parable to motivate his followers to be faithful on earth in order to receive praise and reward from God when they enter into heaven. That kind of motivation is pleasing to God because it is on the priorities and the values of God. On the other hand, if we seek the praise of men, the comforts of this life, the treasures that we can accumulate here, then we are working against God. We are actually in competition with God. We are advancing our kingdom, not his. And that is most displeasing to God. What's life about? You or him? We are building our kingdom. What a waste of a life that is. A waste. Continue in verse 22. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? Well, that clears it up, doesn't it? So I read like eight to ten commentaries about this passage in preparation. And everyone came to that and said, what does that mean? That's great. Thank you. Thank you for your help. It's hard to understand. It's a little proverb that Jesus throws in. But, but, but here's something to help. Look at the context, right? The context is about what your treasure is, right? The context is about whose priorities do you have in mind. So it has something to do with priorities and treasure and money. Here's the best way I can do it. Let me, let me explain it to you and we'll go with this. If your focus, your eye, your focus, your eye, is on earthly gain and treasure, your life will be dominated by evil, darkness, and characterized by selfishness. On the other hand, if your focus, your eye, is on God's priorities, then your life will be dominated by good, by light, and characterized by generosity. Best I can do. Best I can do. Let's go on. Verse 24. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Being neutral, not an option. You and I are going to serve someone or something. We are. It's a question of worship. What do we value more, God or money? The word here is actually mammon. The old King James says mammon. It just means worldliness. Put it this way. The choice is whether we serve God or the values of this world. That's the choice. There's no in-between. Do we serve God or the values of this world? At this point, it's really easy because I did it. I read through this, I'm like, I'm good, I serve God, I, I don't serve the world, I'm good. Next verse, next verse, please, next verse. I got that one. Not so fast. Tim Keller 
a famous pastor today in America, he wrote this. As a pastor, I've had people come to me and confess that they struggle with almost every kind of sin. Almost. I cannot recall anyone ever coming to me and saying, Pastor, I spend too much money on myself. I think my greedy lust for money is harming my family, my soul, and people around me. Guys, we're blind to our love for money. I'm blind to my love of money. So we need to ask some hard questions. I don't do this to you to make you sweat and hate me. I ask these questions because I had to think about it too. Where do we spend our money? If I looked at your pocket, not, not me, if God looked at your pocketbook, what would he see? How much do we spend pursuing our own comfort, pleasure, and entertainment? Oh, I love those three things. Is our focus accumulating wealth or using our resources for God? How generous are we toward God, the church, his people, those in need? What do we pursue most in this world with our time, our energy, our passion, our gifts, our resources? How focused is it on God's kingdom, on helping people find and follow Jesus? Let me ask this last question. If you could have anything in the world, what comes to mind first? That's your treasure. I'd love to tell you that I wrote that question out and I said, helping people find and follow Jesus? Number one. You know what I tend to do? Get out of debt. I really want to get out of debt. I would like to live a little more comfortably and be able to go on more vacations. Do I need to go on or are you saying the same thing? Right? Yeah, I know. So I don't... I don't ask these things because I'm perfect in this area. I ask them because I'm preaching and this is the passage I was assigned and it stinks. This stuff's hard. The fact is all of us can choose to be more generous than we are now. All of us. All of us. Someone once said we're giving the right amount when it hurts, when it's a sacrifice for us. If it doesn't hurt us to give the amount we're currently giving, then we're probably not giving enough. Stop meddling. All right. You think that's a little extreme? I want to give for you an example. King David in the Old Testament, because he lived this way. He was called a man after God's own heart. Sure, he screwed up, but he was a man after God's own heart. This is what it says in 1 Chronicles 21. And David said to Ornan, Give me the site of the threshing floor that I may build on it an altar to the Lord. Okay, he needs to buy a piece of property that belongs to this man named Ornan. Give it to me at its full price that the plague may be averted from the people. He needs to sacrifice to God so that a plague would stop. He had sinned, and he needed to stop the plague, and he knew if he sacrificed, God would listen. Then Ornan said to David, I mean, the king's coming to him. Take it. Let my lord the king do what seems good to him. See, I give the oxen for burnt offerings. I'll give the oxen. I'll throw in the, the wood. I'll even give the wheat for a grain offering. Take it all. It would be my honor to serve the king this way. King David says what? No, no, but I will buy them for the full price. Listen, I will not take for the Lord what is yours, nor offer burnt offerings that cost me nothing. You see the heart of David? I will not sacrifice to God that which doesn't hurt me. I won't do it. Perhaps the next step of faith for you and for me is simply to increase our giving beyond where we're comfortable. Whatever little bit that is, beyond where we're comfortable. That's hard. It takes a little bit of faith to do that. Maybe that's the next step. Verse 25, therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, what you will drink, nor about your body, 
what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Now keep in mind his audience. It's his disciples, but we're in the first century. They pro- one commentator said 80% of the people at that time probably lived near the subsistence level, just getting by day to day. That means four out of the five listeners to Jesus were worried about whether they would find food, shelter, and clothing that day. For most of us in America, we don't live like that. Our needs have been met, period. They have been met. What we think about is our wants. I do. What restaurant will I eat at today? (laughs) Like they thought about that. What vacation should I take this year? What car should I buy? Which home should I rent or live where I live by myself with just my family with lots of amenities? How much should I save for retirement so I can be comfortable? I'm not saying these are bad, but it's where we live, isn't it? It's where I live. So let's take the words of Jesus seriously. If he tells his first listeners, don't worry, God will take care of you, what would he say to us? I mean, come on. If they're not supposed to worry, how much less should we worry? So we need a perspective check. And Jesus gives us one. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? What's he saying? Well, yeah, life is more than just things. The best things in life are not things. Life is like, life is about relationships, family, friends, neighbors. I mean, that, that makes life good. Life is about making a difference in someone else's life, making an impact. Life is about sharing my faith so that others can know about Jesus and have their sins forgiven, and I know that they're in heaven forever because I had the courage to say something. Life is about being kind and generous and touching another human being in ways that things won't do. I mean, that makes life worth living. So yeah, life has meaning far beyond just meeting basic needs. But let's keep reading because Jesus is just getting warmed up. Verse 26. <clears throat> I've got to get a drink. Look at the birds of the air. You can see him on the sermon. He's doing his sermon there on the mount. The He's looking at the birds flying around. He just uses them as an example. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, he says, looking at the flowers around him. How they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? It's a lesson from nature. Don't you think God will care for you if he cares for nature? Now notice, God is emphasizing something very unique about how God, uh, Jesus is emphasizing something unique about how God relates to us. Two things I want to point out. He says, your heavenly father feeds them, the birds. Whose heavenly father feeds them? Your heavenly father. He didn't say their heavenly father feeds them. Look at the pronoun. Not their heavenly father feeds them. Your heavenly father feeds them. God may have created the birds, but only you and I get the privilege of calling God father. Not the birds. He's our father. Your heavenly father. And then he says, are you not of more value than they? In the Greek that it was written in, you is emphatic. It's like it's underlined. Are you not of more value than they? One translation has it this way. Are you not worth much more than they? 
Jesus says, if God cares for his creation, including feeding birds, clothing flowers, will he not care much more for his sons and daughters? The argument from Jesus is based on the value that God puts on us. I don't want you to miss this. I spent most of my time working on this part. Don't miss this. The world says we have value because of what we accomplish, what I do for a living. Every man I've ever met says, what do you do for a living? So that's my identity. That's my identity, what I do for a living. The world says you have value because of the legacy you leave behind, the influence you have, the money you have, how successful you are, how you climb the corporate ladder, how you look even. Right, women? You get that a lot? Is that our value? Jesus says you have value because God gives you value. Listen to this. It doesn't depend on what you do. I'm going to give you two things that you can base your value on. If you're a note taker, please write this down. Your value is based on, number one, the image of God that you have. The image of God that is in you to every human being. We are the apex of God's creation because we reflect him. Every human being contains within them the image of God. It is that which sets us apart from everything else in all creation. Let me give you an example. We mirror God in personhood, in language, in relationship, in morality, in abstract thinking, in emotions, in the ability to love, to worship, to have eternal life. No other creature in the universe can make such a claim to significance like we can. None. But this value is not something we take credit for. It doesn't come from our accomplishments. It isn't from something we do or don't do. It isn't performance-based. It is a gift from God. Put it this way. Our value is extrinsic, not intrinsic. It is from the outside, not from the inside. One theologian puts it this way. Only God has eternal value and intrinsic significance. That is, in and of himself. I am a creature. I come from the dust. The dust isn't all that significant. But I become significant when God scoops up the dust, molds it into a human being, breathes into it the breath of life, and says, this creature is made in my image. God assigns eternal significance to temporary creatures. I don't have anything in me that would demand that God treat me with eternal significance. But I have eternal significance and eternal worth because God gives it to me. You have value because you have the image of God. And number two, you have value because you have the redemption of God that comes through Jesus Christ. Believers in Jesus Christ have been redeemed, bought, purchased by the precious blood of Jesus on the cross. We have value because we've been adopted into God's family by the work of Jesus for what we couldn't do ourselves. We have worth because we now carry the very name of Jesus as our identity. I am called a Christian, a little Christ. My identity is in my Savior. I even take up his name. That's your identity. 1 Peter 1.18 says, You know that it was not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, that you were redeemed. No, but with the precious blood of Christ. Romans 8. You have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself witnesses with our spirit that we are children of God. Christian, you are precious to God. You bear his image, display him to the universe. And as believers in Jesus Christ, you have been bought with the blood of the Son of God so that he calls you his own child and tells you not to call him omnipotent, almighty, sovereign, Creator before whom I quake in fear, 
He says, call me Father. Whoa. Whoa. Because we all should be falling in fear and reverence before Him. He says, call me Dad. I can't make this stuff up. I cannot make this stuff up. It's incredible. You want to know your value, your worth, your significance, your identity? It comes from these truths. Nothing you ever do or fail to do or have done in the past. Nothing someone has done to you or failed to do for you. No circumstance of your life can change the worth you have in God's eyes. It, you belong to Him once by creation in His image and again by redemption through the blood of His Son. You are significant because you are His. When Satan tempts you to despair because of guilt and shame over things you've done, when you experience feelings of hopelessness, inadequacy, worthlessness, when you feel deep anxiety and worry, you must remember these truths. You are a beloved son or daughter of the King, stamped with His image and bought with the precious blood of His Son. You belong to God. That is your identity. Amen, anyone? So why are we anxious? Why do we worry? I think the issue is one of faith. It's not that we don't have any faith. It's that our faith is weak. Jesus himself said, oh, you of little faith. So I think he was getting at the root. Now, the answer, if you worry, is not to stop worrying. There, you feel better? Stop worrying. You should be good now. That only addresses the symptom. The root is a lack of faith. It's a lack of faith in who God is, who I am, and how God will care for me as his beloved child. I I just don't believe that fully. That's the issue. Let's be honest. I don't believe that fully. Ask God to increase your faith to trust him, especially when your circumstances are hard. Ask him to increase your faith and to meditate and marinate on these truths, who he is and who you are. Verse 31, Therefore, so Jesus wraps it up, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? The Gentiles seek after all these things. It just means the unbelievers, what the world does. They seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. He's not downplaying our needs. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So he gives us something to replace our worry with. Then just say, stop worrying. He says, let me give you a different focus. Let me give you something else to think about. You get consumed with worry and anxiety. Let me give you a different focus. I'm okay with you being consumed, but here's the focus I'd like you to have. A passion for God, his kingdom, and what matters to him. You want to be consumed and passionate? Be consumed and passionate about that. Working to advance the kingdom of God in the world. Submitting our agenda to God's agenda. Letting God develop in us what is pleasing to him, the character that reflects Jesus. Investing our lives and our resources for his glory. That kind of single-minded focus on God's priorities comes with a promise. Jesus says, God who already knows your needs anyway will care for you. He will care for you. It's like a two-for-one. We get the privilege of being used by God to accomplish his work in the world. And while we're doing it, He cares for our needs. Do you realize we actually do know what it's like to live without worry and fear? We do. Do you remember when you did it? 
you were a little child in your family's home. Now, some of us had rough homes. I know that. Speaking for the majority here, I'm not insensitive to the broken home you may have come from. But most of us understand what it's like to have been a little child in our parents' home. Did we worry about where the next meal came from? What we would wear? Who would pay the bills? Is the electric, are the lights going to go off or not? Did we worry about that? No. Why? Because those things didn't exist? No, it wasn't our problem. It was our parents' problem. We know what it's like to live without fear, without worry. Jesus is like, I sort of want you to go back to that. I want you to live depending on your parents, and specifically your father, your heavenly father. Because a child, when they're trusting, they can be free to be who they are and let the parent take care of those things. That's what Jesus says to do. It's his problem, not yours. Think about your own kids. Would you callously let them starve, die of thirst, be hurt, be, die of exposure? Of course you wouldn't. So how much more will your perfect heavenly father care for you, his beloved child? That is the argument Jesus is making. That's what Jesus is saying. Now, because I know the way our minds work, this doesn't mean if we seek God's kingdom, we'll never experience hard times. If we just get our priorities right, it's smooth sailing from here on out. It's not what he's saying. Look at the life of Jesus for a minute. Jesus was God's beloved son, but he suffered greatly. He was tempted with hunger in the desert. He understood grief. He was rejected, denied, betrayed, even abandoned. He felt the excruciating pain of flogging and death on a cross alone. Yet his focus was always on his father's priorities. Always. Even when he faced his greatest test in the garden the night before he died, when he was overwhelmed with sorrow, he said, to the point of death, drop, sweating as it were drops of blood. What did he say? He said, not my will, but yours be done. He gave us a demonstration of how to live in a sinful and a broken world, depending on his father for all his needs, trusting his father's plan, even when the circumstances were overwhelmingly difficult. Now you might say, that's great, but I'm not Jesus. No, you're not. I'm not either. But there's another example I'll give you. The Apostle Paul, he was a man like you and I are men and women. Just a normal, everyday, sinful man. But he said this in Philippians 4. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. So this isn't a promise that putting God first means your life will be peaches and cream. It's not what I'm saying. What, is the, what, it, what I'm saying is this. Jesus is saying to us, get your focus off of yourself, off of your circumstances, and off of your needs. Put it instead on God and on his priorities and live from that perspective. Then, in his wisdom, in his timing, and in his perfect will, your Father in heaven will meet your needs. Why? Because you are his and he loves you. The question is, will we trust him? It all comes back to whether we trust him. I had a mentor who worked for years as a church planter in South America. He started new churches there. And this was a third world country that didn't have a lot of money. These people were struggling. And he had to teach them about giving to God and setting aside money for his work. That was really hard for them, really, really hard for them. They're just struggling to get by. So he made an arrangement with them. He said, I'll tell you what, you give me the money at the beginning of the month that you feel like God wants you to set aside or just whenever you get your paycheck. I will hang on to it, 
And if you need it back at the end of the month or before your next paycheck, I will give it back to you with interest. My arrangement with you. He did that for years in South America. Do you know how many people in his entire ministry came back to him to get the money back at the end of the month or before the next paycheck? Do you know how many? None. No one ever did. And this is in impoverished Latin America. What they learned was that God was able to provide for their needs as they trusted him with their money. We began today talking about finding treasure, which we think instinctively is the key to a good life. What we learned instead was that the good life isn't made by owning a fortune. It's made by trusting our Heavenly Father to meet our needs. Trusting. 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 Would you pray with me, please? Thank you, Lord, that we can call you Father. Thank you, Father, for loving us and redeeming us by the blood of Jesus. Thank you for promising to care for our needs. Please forgive us for seeking treasure on earth, for putting our kingdom before your own. Forgive us for worrying and not trusting what you have promised. Forgive us for obsessing about anything and anything, everything, except for your kingdom and your priorities. Teach us to trust you, to walk by faith, and to live generously. We love you and we need you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.